You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Dr. Emily Oster. Um, Dr. Oster is a well-respected economics professor at Brown University and researcher. She's done some really groundbreaking work on delving into the statistics for for motherhood, uh, raising infants, raising babies, and growing a family. Um, she's, She's helped people make a lot of really great decisions as they navigate their lives through those transitions. She's also been all over the news lately with her unique take on COVID research. She has a knack for parsing through the data and finding the truth in it. So today, we're really excited to talk to Dr. Emily Oster. I'm Sanger Smith. With Sean Smith, this is Decidedly. Neither Sean nor I are are currently are expecting uh, children. You talked about how you moved or, or decided to write this book, right? Decided to write Expecting Better is your first book, right? Yeah. And what was fascinating to me was that you saw all these rules with pregnancy, all these rules from doctors or from people that would say, yeah, okay, don't drink caffeine, don't drink alcohol. Um, once you get 35, you're not going to be fertile anymore. All these like hard and fast black and white things and you decided to question all of them. So I'm sure that some of that is your personality. You think? Right? Yeah, just a little little bit, (laughs) a little bit. Some of that is just who you are. But how do people who aren't that analytical, how can they make better decisions in other areas of life where they can't rely on someone who did all the work that you did for them? I mean, I think that, you know, it's, there are some basic decision-making principles that I think that people can, can use even when they are not, when you are not going to be able to sort of dig into the data, right? If I sort of think about the pieces of, of kind of how I analyze these problems, there's the piece of them that's like, let me read the literature, let me like really like use the statistical training that I have to really understand the nuances of the data. But then there's also a piece that's just like, let me think about a structure of this decision. Let mm-hmm. me think about, you know, what are the trade-offs here? Let me even think about what the decision is before I d- dive into that. And that piece doesn't I mean it requires a particular kind of sort of training your, your brain, but it doesn't require any particular statistical training or anything like that. And I think that's the piece where I try to tell people, that's just a lot of what's in the new book is sort of trying to help people think about, okay, what's the right process for these decisions? How would you think about what are the costs? What are the benefits? How do we, how do we trade, those, um, trade those off? I think the other thing that I often tell people is like sometimes somebody will tell you something and it seems uh, crazy mm-hmm. and it might be crazy. Like, you know, people, when they're like, some of these things people will tell you, like, if you have even one sip of coffee, like your baby could turn out with, you know, like a, like a weird birthmark. Like, that's not true. And you shouldn't like, and it wouldn't, it sort of wouldn't matter what information you get about that. Like, that's definitely not true. Sure. And so there's a little bit of a piece here about kind of using your priors and saying, well, is that plausible? Like, is it really likely Does that, that even the make day sense? I turn 35, yeah. I, everything goes to pot? Like, are there other biological processes that work like that? 
No? Okay, well, probably it isn't this one either. And I think that's the sort of key to some of this stuff. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I, I realized for myself reading this, which hopefully I, I get to use all of these decision points later in life, but as of right now, it's not, <laughs> it's not particularly relevant, but I, I think I realized that there are, I, I'm a rule breaker at heart anyway, right? And so I realized that there are a lot of rules that need to be broken but also rules are a natural consequence of, in my opinion, having to disseminate information to a large group of people. Yes. And, and I wanted to hear what, what you thought. Is that, do you think that's why we get all these rules yes. or we get rules for some other reason? Yeah, I think that's, that's like such, a, such a good point. And yes, I think that's, that's right. I think there's a, a, a huge value when you're conveying guidelines to people in being able to convey something simple. And there, you know, there are good reasons for that, right? Like you don't, you know, you, when you tell somebody, I don't know, like, what's the right, like, I'm trying to think about a, an example that's not out of this, but think about something like a BMI, right? We have these cutoffs for being overweight mm -hmm. and the cutoff for being overweight is a BMI of 25. No, there's a reason to have a cutoff there. Partly it's because, you know, then you can kind of convey something to people. It just sort of gives you some language to use to explain maybe you should go on a little bit of a diet. It's also good for tracking. So a lot of these kind of rules are, are kind of accrue because we want to be able to say over time, you know, what's the share of the U.S. population with some feature, and so we need to define what that feature is, and you know, so we pick some natural some natural cutoff. I think the problems come when we then use those as if they mean something. Right, so sometimes you'll kind of make a rule, and then the, even though the rule itself was just some sort of arbitrary like number, people will start treating it like it's like it's special, like it's mm. a sort of like like the moment that your BMI is twenty five point one, like immediately you're tremendously unhealthy. Whereas now, if it was twenty four, yeah, right. now you're fat, and like we know, like being fat is terrible. And you know, 20, 24.9, like then you're a skinny person. Like, do not worry about that. You know, it's like, well, that's not really like that can't be right, and yet we sort of treat it treat it like that. And actually, this sometimes has really serious consequences. So there's some very nice research. Um, when you talk about birth weight for babies, there's a cutoff at 1500 grams, which is defined as low, very low birth weight, if you're below that. And so actually, there's some research that shows that babies that are just under that, like 1499 grams, get much better, much more extensive care than babies that are just over mm. that, because people, have, because they're classified in this other group, even though that number was just, again, sort of picked so we could have some We some had to summary. have the line be somewhere. Exactly, you have oh, to put the line you know, somewhere. It's, it's important to, to have, you know, these heuristics or rules of thumb that we that we have in, in medical uh, fields and in the financial services fields. They're important, I think, for conveying concepts, uh, giving people guidelines for, you know, sort of general type of advice. I have a question. You know, when you when you hear all of these sort of rules of thumb, like you were just talking about, how do you know which ones are things you ought to be questioning? You, you talked about, you know, if it sounds crazy, but so many people don't have the either wherewithal to research. They don't have the time to research. This is not their personality. Uh, how do we know when things are something we ought to be taking into consideration because a lot of the BS that comes to us from the internet, if I Google something, it, it comes from what seems to be a fact-based 
uh, position. I mean, it sounds sounds like it might be real, but yeah. turns out it's not. <laughs> Don't we know yeah, the difference? I, I mean, I think one thing this is, it's almost never the case that anything that has a sharp cutoff is actually different on either side of the cutoff, right? So if somebody says like, you know, if your credits, you know, if that's actually not always true, but like, but from almost anything that's a sort of like a process of some type, there isn't, it isn't going to be the case that when this number goes above six, something special happens that didn't happen that was, you know, when it was, when it was 5.9. And so the question is, in some ways, sort of what should you take from information like this? So what should you sort of take from these trends? How, like that there's something you would learn, which is like higher values of this may be worse in some, in some way. But I, translating that into you care specifically about the cutoff, I think that's, that's where we kind of get into, that's where we get into, into problems and where it's, it's very rare that there's something like that where the cutoff really matters. You know, even things like credit scores, right? People use, you know, in the financial space, people use credit sure. scores to decide, like, if your credit score is below X, we're not giving you a, you a loan. Well, that means that the people with the credit scores just above X are more likely to get a loan, but they're actually not really very different than the people credit scores just below X. And, you know, on average, people with higher credit scores are going to pay you back more, but just because their credit score is 601 and not 599, doesn't actually mean that much. Mm -hmm. Sure. It's, it, people like those rules though. People like to, to have the conclusion be given to them. I think, um, you know, you, you, you said earlier, you said, don't Google stuff to figure out the decision. <laughs> Like, man, that's what I'm, that's how I'm making most of my thing. decisions. <laughs> that's how I'm figuring most things out. I started training for a triathlon. Oh, I'm going to do an Ironman in 2021. I've never done a triathlon. I did a triathlon as a 12 year old that was like probably totaled three miles, which is, you know, it, it was nothing. It's a few so, more miles for the Ironman. Okay, it's a, yeah, it's a little bit longer. Few more. I'm not a runner. I'm not a cyclist. I'm not a swimmer. Sounds I, like a great plan. I don't see why it could go wrong. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure it'll all be fine. But in the process, like I wanted to figure out all of these things about triathlon. I wanted to figure out all these things about eating healthy, about working out. And I've learned a lot. But what I've done is I'm searching for other people to have drawn a conclusion that I can go just extract. Like I want to go find a trainer that has told me how to get faster at running. And I, I do that. What is the best training plan? And I just, that's what I was looking for because I can't get that tailored one-on-one -on -one coaching. What I could, but I'm just not doing it. But you're cheap. You don't want to buy I'm, it. So yeah, I'm, I'm, you don't I'm cheap. pay for stuff. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people do, people, people like to be told what to do. And there are circumstances in which actually that's probably good because it may well be the case that there's many good ways to train for a triathlon. And really you just need to like pick one and stick to it. And so in a sense, like, it's good to have someone just tell you, this is the plan. It does, you know, it's, there's 50 possible plans, but you just got to pick one. I mean, this is what child discipline is like. The main thing is there is like, there's a lot of different good ways to do this. You can have the warnings, you can have the this, you can have the that. The main thing is pick something where you've decided on a set of consequences and then do that every time. And that's the thing yeah. people respond to. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if, the, if it's a reward with a cookie or a punishment or a time, like just like something where there's a consistency and they and it happens every time. That's the key thing. So in some sense, like people like to be told, I mean, adults are like this too. We like to, it's why these kind of diets work that have like strict rules, right? Because people have a hard time with vagaries. But if you just tell them your diet is don't eat bread, 
Okay, at least they understand what that is. Yeah, you lose me when you start talking about macros and weighing things and yeah. you got to have- Count the points. What is it? No. Just like have some rule. Don't eat cookies. You know, every if I want to no lose bread. weight, it's like okay. don't eat cookies, don't eat bread. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I can't do it, but I do understand what it is. <laughs> yeah. I can't follow them. Well, I You're think- You're not following they were... any of them, but they make sense. Yeah. It makes sense. <laughs> no, that's funny. Yeah, people, people really like the rules, but it has a negative consequence in that they become the Bible, all of these different rules. I talk about that in, in finance with clients, like people come with all of these rules that some of them I've never even heard before, but they will approach the conversation as if it is the rule. And maybe it's, you know, I've got to distribute X percent from my portfolio, or I've got to have this amount of money in stocks, or I shouldn't spend more than this amount of my income on housing. And people get frustrated when the answer is every single time. The answer for me is it. Well, it depends. It depends. It depends. Do not like that. Yeah, nobody likes yeah. that. No, no, and I mean it is. It's it is the finance financial stuff is really interesting because you sort of think about these rules that people tell you when when you're when you're budgeting. Like, okay, if you want to sort of stick to a budget, you should have categories, right? You should have like this is your envelope with the food money and this is your leisure envelope and this is your this and you shouldn't like take money out of the gas envelope mm -hmm. put it in the leisure envelope because like that's a mistake and of course for economists it's like well money's fungible like all money is is all the same so then what do you mean there's like leisure money but of course people behave as if there's leisure money and also it is it sort of has this value so there's like a little bit of a tension there about you know there's something that's good about the rules but not if you imbue them with significance that they should not that they do not have. Um, sure. Yeah, I thought it was, you know, interesting when we, you know, some of the questions that we wrestle with as financial advisors, a lot of times people want to boil it down to the mathematical answer. And many times the mathematical answer is not where the advice really needs to come from. It needs to come from well, how much, you know, utility do you get out of making this decision? Uh, you know, one of them that, that comes to mind a lot is, you know, should I pay off my house or should I take this lump sum and invest it and maybe I'll make more money by investing it than I will by paying off my house? Well, maybe that's true, but if your values are around freedom from debt and, and peace of mind and you don't want to have to worry about this, maybe the right decision for you is not the mathematical answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe it is, maybe we should just pay this off. And you can just be done with it. And you, you brought up one of the things uh, about having parents who work, right? So, uh, and you, you, I liked how you went through that because it's a question I get about, you know, should should this person stay home with the baby, or should this person go back to work? And we've come up with mathematical answers to that. But what's interesting to me is that I hear advice just as strongly on, on the side of, no, you know, you, you need to, somebody needs to stay home with the baby, which is not coming from an, an economist, <laughs> right? It might come from a, uh, uh, a fundamental uh, religious bias or something. So it's not a mathematical decision, but you, you came in at, you know, talk a little bit about it, but you came from a uh, economic standpoint about answering that question and came to a totally different answer. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in some ways a little bit of a different answer, but it's also, it's not like, 
I think basically when I go through what, you know, what I do there is I really go through like what, you know, what are the benefits, like are there benefits to the baby and you kind of come down to like, there are some benefits to being home in the first few months, you know, some benefits to some basic like maternity leave. But then if you think about the longer term issue of, you know, is it better for your kid if the parent stays home or the parent doesn't stay home? Like for the kid, it's a bit of a wash. Like, you know, they're kind of not much either way. And so then you get into, all right, well, you kind of got to think about what's true, like what's going to make the family, like what's going to work for the family. And there's a piece of that that's financial. And then there's a piece of that that's people's, that's people's preferences, which I think is sort of what you're saying that there's like a sort of, there's like the mathematical answer, which is like, let me figure out what would maximize your family income. And like, you know, there's that piece of it, but then there's just like, okay, at the end of the day, like if you're on, if you're rich and unhappy, that's, that's like not the goal, right? The goal is not to accumulate money piles. The goal is to like use your money to make you as happy as, as possible, presumably. And for something like this, that means, you know, you're like thinking about the financial consequences in a serious way, but also trading them off against whatever other preferences, whatever other things are going on in the, in the background, but not against the sort of this like knee jerk somehow, like there's a right way to do this or a wrong way to do this. You know, from your kid's standpoint, there are many good choices. The question is more like, what do you want? Well, how do I keep from, or how would somebody keep from when they're researching to, to find these answers and make a decision that's important for them and their family? How do you keep from letting confirmation bias creep in and say, well, I'm just going to go find the answers that support what I kind of want to do anyway. You know, I kind of want to make this decision. So I'm going to look for information that shows me that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's obviously that's, that's very hard. I think the, the best advice I have there is to try to really compartmentalize those two pieces to say, basically like acknowledge, like the thing that I want is going to play a role in this decision. So there's going to be a part of the decision where I figure out what does the data say? And then there's later, I'm going to get the opportunity to think about what I want, but I can, because I'm going to get that opportunity later, I want to like separate it from this piece where I get the information. And so to try to say, I'm, I'm going to try, and again, this is a sort of try, like to try, I'm going to try to figure out both sides of this, but knowing that later I'm going to get to kind of incorporate the things that I the, the sort of idea of my, of my preferences. Because I think part of what happens in a lot of these decisions, particularly around parenting, exactly the thing you say, that like people have this idea that like, okay, like because I want to do this, I want to find the data that supports doing that. The thing that's so damaging, I think about that is that then you end up being mean to other people, right? It's like, I mm-hmm. want my choice to be, to be not just right for me, but like so right that it's the right choice for everyone. And then I'm being an asshole. And, and so, you know, you really want to, uh, want to try to be able to say, you know, he, I looked at these data and I decided what was right for me. And in some ways, if you can do that, then maybe you won't be so judgy about other people. Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, people want to, people often go find the information that supports the conclusion they already have. And and I see that, fine, I see that in a lot of different areas. I'm sure it exists with, you know, child raising children, of course, I want to justify my decision to, to work, to not work. And if, if I'm looking for that justification, then that means it's it. gotta be because it's the right choice, not just a right choice. Yeah. And I think that distinction is sort of like, I think partly in these spaces where people care so much, it's very hard to acknowledge that if someone else d- did something different, they could also be right. You just really want it to be so right. And, mm-hmm. and that leads to, you know, looking for kind of evidence that is right for everybody. 
um, rather than being able to just step back and say, you know, that's the right thing for, for me. And I think it's it, part of what makes some aspects of parenting really stressful. It's dangerous too, because obviously I'm not a parent, hoping to not be a parent anytime soon, but I've got, I, I had an experience with this exact idea, right? So I used to dip tobacco all the time, every day. And so if you're going to continue to do things that are harmful to your health, you've got two options. One is to not do it or two is to justify the continued behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, so I obviously I chose option two for many years. And uh, there are a couple of guys in, in my office that also use smokeless tobacco. So we would kind of feed on each other and just continue to justify. So I'm pretty analytical of this. Jason, he's pretty analytical too. And he would, he went and researched all this data, right? To justify why it wasn't unhealthy. And the biggest thing was that you, we always heard about smokeless tobaccos. It causes mouth cancer, right? That's what everyone says. That's what they think. That's what I was told. Uh, that's what my dentist told me. And he, he went and looked it up and he found that the rate of mouth cancer was essentially the same across the country, even though different states had different use of smokeless tobacco. And so the conclusion that we all drew was, we're not getting cancer, so it doesn't matter. And what we then did was we discounted all of the other possible negative consequences mm -hmm. because we said, well, if this mouth cancer thing is a lie, everything else must be a lie. Too. Everything else is a lie. And so it was funny because I went, I, I, I quit. I went to the dentist after I had quit and I was like, Hey, you know, it's been like three, four months. I haven't used any tobacco. They were like, Oh, that's really good. And they go, so we'll see you um, in do you still want to come in every three months? Because I had been going every three months instead of like every six months to a year because I was nervous about getting mouth cancer. Mm -hmm. And they were like, do you still want to do that? And I said, well, I mean, shouldn't I? Because like I could still get cancer because I used to do it. And my dentist looks me dead in the eyes. He goes, no, <laughs> that, that we were just trying to scare you. Like you're not. That's not that nobody gets it. Great. It's okay. not even a thing. <laughs> <laughs> already quit so what's it you know yeah but i was but at the same time i'm like why why did these if 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 these rules or if these misinterpretations of data exist and permeate through you know the culture through the population and, and we pick up on them and and one rebel out there like you challenges them it's so tempting for them to all fall apart yeah, I mean, I think this is such a big issue with some of our some of our messaging that like, I mean, what, you know, you're like, it isn't a good idea to use smokeless tobacco, but your your example is exactly it's sort of like, okay, you're telling me this, like the scariest thing. It turns out yeah. like that particular thing is like, you know, there's other reasons not to do it. No, okay, I'll just like, have yellow not, teeth and they'll fall out yeah, later, but I'm not going to have cancer. <laughs> it's a little gross, but you know, they've come up with sort of the scare and then they tell you that and but then when you disprove yeah. it, it's like, well, what I mean this, you know, this comes up in, in we sort of have this idea that if we just make the public health messaging more extreme, people will like eventually start to respond to it as opposed to then when they realize that actually some of the things you're saying are insane, they're gonna be like, well, you said this crazy thing. Like, I, you know, I don't, I'm not gonna, why do I believe any of the things you say? You told me the bananas thing was obviously wrong. And then, you know, you're nuts. And by the way, we are seeing a lot of this in COVID not to like bring it to the elephant in the room, but all of this, like, you know, our total inability to communicate nuance to people that mm -hmm. were just like lurching between different public health messages. You know, vaccines are perfect, well, but they don't protect you from it. Like, as opposed to sort of saying, look, here's the kind of more nuanced thing. 
And this is, I think, part of why people don't trust. Yeah, now we've got we've got two right. different groups of people. The you've got the double maskers and the no maskers. Yeah, we got the the COVID deniers and the zero riskers is what I like to call them. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's true. And you know, it's it's just it's a like it's a there's a hard the hard space hard to find the space in the middle. Between, do you, do you like, find that when when people are sort of aligned in these two camps, whether it's you know um, on breastfeeding or not breastfeeding, or if it's you know this or that or the other thing, that there become these two defined camps or schools of thought that it kind of doesn't matter, or that can half the people really be that wrong? Or did you find any sort of common thread when it was sort of aligned where two, you know, where it was sort of in debate that it didn't matter? Or <laughs> I mean, I think people like to be in a people like to be in a camp. Nobody people they don't like to be in the in the kind of the the, the unwashed middle, right? I mean, the, yeah. this is you really like to be validated by the people that agree with you or yeah. like be it's just like people like there's like such an in-group bias right in, in sort of psychology like I just want to be in my in my group and so if my group is the you know breastfeed all the time group that's the group I want to you know I want to be in with them and I want to be like really bought into their business so you start challenging you know I, I think you're right people sort of get in these groups and then it's hard to convince people Otherwise, it's kind of like your favorite sports team, whatever it is. I, there's no way I'm going to convince you that your team is not the right team to follow. It's it's kind of just what you believe and what you do. And a lot of the the folks on the sort of the anti-vaxxer group, let's say, it's just it's sort of what they believe. You know, facts be damned. I mean, that's what they're going to believe. It's hard to convince them otherwise. How, if you feel, how would you recognize if you're one of these people in this group? <laughs> like maybe I'm in this group, but I don't know it. Uh, I mean, I think we're all, I'm sorry to report, I think we're all in some of these groups. You know, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of things where it's, it's almost certainly true for almost for everybody that there's something about this, something that you're so, almost like so committed to that data wouldn't, wouldn't affect you. I think that's kind of how I define this group. Like, what is it that you believe so strongly that it really doesn't matter if somebody showed you data, like you would just like show you like the best evidence on that, you just still wouldn't believe it. Yeah, people just um, say, nah, nah, it's, it's the- uh, Yeah, just like, no, that's not, I'm just, I don't know. I like, I think you may- I still like, want to believe what I want to believe. Facts be yeah, damned. And I think, you know, the, the thing is we probably all have things like that. Did you find anything when you were doing, and you, you've done a ton of research on this stuff, on the, did you find anything that really surprised you that shook you out of one of those camps? You're like, oh my gosh, I believe this my whole life. I can't believe that I was wrong. I think I came into most of this without a lot of, like, I mean, I was like, when you parent, you're sort of, you're just like, oh, everything is new. And I'm so there weren't that many things about which I had like a very strong um, preconception. Occupational hazard that you came in so open-minded then maybe. Yeah, maybe that's right. Like, I mean, you know, this thing about like economists, like we always have two hands, right? It's like, and the famous line, somebody was like, get me an economist with only one hand. On the other hand, no on the other hand. And so I think we're, um, but I mean, there are things about this. I mean, I'm sort of honest about this in, in the book. There are things where like, like one thing for me is like spanking. I don't believe in spanking and there's kind of no information that you would show me. And I like, I, I sort of like that, not everybody agrees with that. Like that's, but that for me, that was sort of a thing where like, I just, I just, there is just nothing you could show me that would make me think that was a good idea. Um, and I, you know, and, and I, I, I did end up writing about it, but it's sort of with that caveat at the start, like, 
you know, I'm coming into this with a much stronger bias than I do with almost anything else. That one's tough because I, I, there's no one who's wishy-washy on hitting their kids. <laughs> I could, you're I could all in favor of it. Or you're like you're the, right. They're definitely, if you're kids. a pro spanker, you have to be hardcore in the pro spanker camp. Otherwise you're just kind of hit like what am I doing here yeah because basically nobody I mean I think the space there is like you know people wouldn't really say it like I'm hitting my kid but so there's a sort of like but there is like there's a camp of people who think there are people who think that that's that like like that is a a system of discipline that is you know and yeah but even if it's good and even if they wouldn't phrase it like that you still have to you have to think it's great because if it's a neutral for the kid well, geez, man, that's pretty extreme measure to go to for a neutral outcome. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, I think the data suggests it's, you know, my read of the data is that it is not supportive of that as even neutral um, as an outcome. What's your, what's your data show on? Just the data on this mostly shows that it actually worsens behavioral problems rather than making them better. Is that there a... Are other methods, there are other methods of discipline that are more effective at improving behavior. Sure. What do you think it is that people hang on to with that one specifically? Their upbringing. I mean, I think that some, you know, like most I people- got, have, I got spanked. I look, I'm, a, I'm fine. And I love my parents. And like, I have a good, you know, I have a good relationship yeah. with my parents and they, they, you know, I think they raised me well. And I think yeah, that, yeah. that was like a, and I mean, I think that there are, there are many of the things that we do as parents are things that our parents did um and you know like on a on a sort of lighter note there are many things i think as a kid that we think i would do it like that and then you do it like for me it's like peanut butter like when i was a kid there was like these commercials for jiff and i was like and my mom always bought the like peanut butter with like the oil on the top that you mix like natural peanut butter you know you familiar with this kind of peanut butter and my whole life i was like when i have kids we're gonna have so much jiff. It's gonna be just jiff everywhere. Everything, all of it, it's high <laughs> sugar, the smooth jiff, you know, choosy moms. I mean, I remember the commercial, like choosy moms, choosy jiff. My mom wasn't choosy. My mom was just getting the like mixed in natural peanut butter stuff. And now, like, lo and behold, my kids are like, when I have kids, I'm gonna get jiff. And I'm like, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Let's see what you get. Like, why is this peanut butter so chunky? We'll see what you end up with. Yeah, you'll you'll learn 20 years later. 20 years later, you're going to find out what it's like. Do your kids hold things against you? They're like, oh, mom, this is what you said. And you're, you're like, you, you say I've to do this, but look what you're that, doing. I've, yeah, I've told my daughter that story. The thing that she likes the best about that story is that now my parents, for some reason, have a lot of GIF in their house. And so when she goes to their house, there's all this GIF. It's just like the whole thing is like all backwards and weird. But uh, yeah, of course, they hold things. They hold things against me. Kids. did morgan tell you our producer morgan did she tell you she was pregnant no congratulations oh, thanks yeah. i'm growing a whole human it's amazing it's one of the one of the most challenging things to do so i mean i always think it's such a weird feeling right like to think that one day that person's going to be like i don't know telling you you got to buy the jeff peanut butter yeah. you did some research around introducing peanuts and think you know allergens in yeah. early so what did you find there? So this is like it's such a great example of sort of science evolution and, and how results are terrible. So for a long time, people have been told not to give their kids the, like high allergen foods when they're infants. So that's like pe- the peanut butter was like the biggest one, but also 
most kid allergies are a, a small number of things, tree nuts, like peanuts, tree nuts, eggs, milk, sometimes wheat. Um, and so the idea was sort of avoid those things early on because your kid, it will make your kid more likely to be allergic if you like introduce peanuts early on. And so then there was this sort of series of, of studies kind of initially just comparing across countries and then ultimately doing a randomized trial basically showed that actually that advice is literally the opposite of the correct advice. Like the correct advice is that your kid should get allergens, peanuts, eggs, wheat, milk, uh, basically by four, like at four months. So you should, that should be like among the first foods you get them, you give them and that the early introduction of those foods really, really, really reduces the risk of aller allergies like by 70% or something. So just like enormous, enormous uh, impacts um, on, on allergies, which of course is, you know, I think in a some, in some sense, like such a damaging, with such damaging public health advice, because if you look at the rates of peanut allergies over the last, you know, like 30, 30 years, they've gone up tremendously, almost certainly because this advice was the opposite of the correct advice. Right. Everybody kept peanuts away from their little babies because that's what we were told, right? Yeah. And that was why, you know, when I was a kid, like peanut butter, like nobody, I mean, I do not remember peanut allergy being like a big piece of my no, it wasn't like a thing. childhood. And, and with my daughter, like, you know, there was sort of like everyone was allergic to peanuts. But then this, this study came out when my son was um, like the month before my son was born. And it's basically, it was very, the change in public health advice was very fast. And so every, like nobody in his class is allergic to peanuts. Wow. So I can blame bad data on my peanut allergy or my peanut allergy on bad data. You have a peanut. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. It, it's not so bad now that I, people always ask me how allergic if I say I'm allergic and it's like, yeah, I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to die probably, but it's going to ruin my day. And growing yeah. up, well, they're, they're going to know it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're going to know that I had peanuts. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's the science. That's science's fault. I mean, because yeah, you're yeah. somewhat. How old are you? Tonight? Twenty-six. Yeah, so you're like you're like exactly in like the bad. Wow, that's the amazing. Bad range for this. Yeah, the the interesting thing though is I developed a superpower where I can smell peanuts a mile away, because my body had to just protect me from accidentally eating peanuts it's not like peanuts are in breathing everything. underwater or flying but you know no it's yeah. not quite no, as cool yeah on the list of superpowers that one's pretty lame no, they're, they're leaving me out of the not next avengers yeah. um, <laughs> peanut smeller guy peanut, peanut man guy. Peanut there's man. a snickers I don't know, peanut man oh. seems the opposite of something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was funny though i mean growing up i i people people would try to sneak one around me um because i'd say hey guys I, i'm allergic like you know keep this out of the room and people would, because if I was, and I would do the same thing. If I wasn't allergic, I would not give a shit really about as a seven-year-old kid <laughs> about my classmates' peanut allergy, you know, and they'd just say, toughen up. But if someone like opened up a Snickers across the cafeteria, I'd be like, oh man, who in here am I mad at right now? There have been a lot of progress on treating these also with these like avert, basically with like small, small doses. Yeah. Interventions. So yeah, the science changes. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, all about, uh, you know, you write about putting a baby on their back versus putting it on their stomach. And it, it's scary to think, you know, the public health impacts of bad research and bad data. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the sort of two pieces of that for me are sort of one, this issue of just like, boy, we got to be a little careful, like how 
much we can tell, like how much we rely on, on flawed data, which we sort of do all the time. But I think there's also a, an issue of messaging in all of these spaces that we're kind of like, you know, we, we message everything. I mean, this gets back to this issue of rules, but like we message everything as if we're like so sure. And then yeah. when you switch the messaging, there's a, there's a piece of like, well, we how were so sure can before. We be like, now? Yeah. Why did you like, why are you sure now? You know, and it, I mean, particularly when it's such a shift, like either the back, the front to the, you know, the sort of front to the back sleeping, it's the same kind of thing. Like it was initially like put your baby to sleep on their stomach because otherwise they're more likely to die. Then it was like, put them to sleep on their back because they're otherwise more likely. Well, which one is it? Because this is definitely something I don't want to be risking, but you <laughs> just told wrong. me the other thing. You know, and now, by the way, like my mom is telling me like, well, when I had you, you know, they told me to put you on your, on your stomach. And so like, what, what, you know, what is this? And I think it's hard for people, unless you want to spend all this time, like digging into like, okay, exactly which studies would, it's hard to understand why that changed. And, you know, how do we know that evidence now is better? Yeah. How much of it do you think is because of the, the need to reduce everything down to its simplest form for mass consumption? I think that that is certainly a lot of what people say is the is the reason, um, and I think some of that is um, some of that is true, and some of that is not giving people enough credit for mm-hmm. ability to understand nuance. Um, so I think that is probably the most widely argued reason to do stuff like that, and um, and you know to say like we're going to have rules because people can't understand it otherwise. Um, but I I think that we are probably underestimating. Yeah, that that may not be fair. But people definitely do that. Like with hurricanes, oh, you're all going to die. We're all going to die if this hurricane comes through. It's like, well, the message there didn't really need to be so severe. <laughs> right. Um, because again, no when it doesn't happen, either. like people don't trust you next time. It's, like, it's exactly. like the boy who cried wolf kind of issue. What do you think is the are the other reasons why we have so many instances where we're just wrong as a collective? on important issues like that? I mean, I think some of it is that some of these questions are very hard um, mm-hmm. and they don't, you know, it is it is like very difficult to, to learn about them. Um, and I think sometimes we lurch on advice, particularly in the health space, because actually it doesn't matter. And this is sort of doesn't, this is okay in the sense that like, if it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter that much. But you ask like sort of, why are we so lurchy about diet advice? Why is it like today it's kale, tomorrow it's blueberries and it's red meat, no red meat, cheese, no cheese, this mm-hmm. the paleo, not paleo, modern astro diet. I mean, you know, it's a different. Stuff. The reason that we're lurchy so much on that is that all of these things, like doesn't, none of this data is very good. And so any like signal, any small effect is sort of totally swamped by just like the general noise of, of chaos. Um, and so it's very hard to get to the answer. There it doesn't matter as much. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of this uh, Lewis Black stand-up bit. Y'all know who Lewis Black is? Yeah, I do. Okay, he's yeah. he's just this angry comic, um, and he had this bit where he was going off about how I hate this country. We care so much about health. We care so much that we're the fattest country uh, in the world. And and he goes, we care so much about health that we don't know anything about health. Is milk good or bad? He asked the audience. And everyone's silent and he's like, I rest my case. And it, you know, it gets a big laugh. It's like, okay, yeah, good point. I, I think obviously he's taking it uh, with a angle. He's trying to be funny. Um, I don't think that it's super fair to say that we care so much that we don't know anything. 
but there, everybody knows those has those things where it's like when I was growing up, uh, eggs were bad for you and now they're good for you. And then they'll be bad for you again. And, and I remember the, I remember when they switched from being good to bad, mm -hmm. I was like five or six. Yeah. And it was like, there was a time when like for, for a while we had like egg omelet, like cheese omelets every morning. And then it was like, Oh no, we're back to cereal. Like eggs are like, that's it. Cholesterol, high cholesterol, give you have the cholesterol. It's going to be. And then, and now we're like, Oh, cereal sugar it's the devil mm -hmm. you know it's right. like, i mean this is some of my research is about sort of like these kind of things and of oh, course I, people yeah i remember when do. i when i was growing up all of the all of the cereals were uh sugar was in the name of all the sugar, cereals. remember sugar sugar smacks sugar smacks sugar smacks is like 50 literally like 50 percent sugar by weight <laughs> <laughs> like, frosted sugar sugar crisps and uh Sugar, everything was sugar in the name. Cocoa, cocoa, like a marshmallow. Cocoa, delicious. Like, yeah, the best, all so good. Yes. But I think I think the uh, it's tough because a lot of times there's flawed research that you know isn't done well, or it's biased research that has an agenda that people are putting out there, and you, you find out, oh, oh, that's that's funded by the sugar industry. The sugar, no wonder it says sugar, sugar, smack sugar smack smacks. Or, that person works in health. sugar smack cereal. <laughs> Huh, interesting. Note. Yeah, so I, I think it's, you know, either flawed research, bias research, or just the, or there's a lack of research, and it's just, you know, people telling their friends something, and there's nothing to back it up. They're just, you know, a, a myth gets hold in the, in the culture and runs through like wildfire, and people believe it. Yeah, so, no, stuff is hard. How, do your research. How? how much of the inaccuracies when it comes to public health or, you know, pregnancy advice, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that we think we know that end up being wrong. Right. Um, we listed a couple, like you, you can't drink when you're pregnant. You can't drink when you're breastfeeding. Uh, once you turn 35, you're going to become infertile, all these weird things that are just not true. There's more nuance there, but how much of it, if any, did you find were supported or existed because of an agenda that someone was pushing? Not very many. So I would say that the sort of um, most of the errors I think are about just like flaws in our data analysis or mm -hmm. lack of like lack of data as opposed to like, you know, this is the blah, blah, blah lobby that's trying to like, you know, get some something, you know, to, to sort of convince people of something that's not that's not true. So I think that's in this space, that's probably not as important. I mean, I think when you get into, or at least like in this sort of pregnancy space, when you get into things like food, yeah, I think a lot yeah, of our, our research Obviously, is there's a lot of opportunity. Somebody, somebody's funding that. Yeah. Um, but I think yeah, in the- so in Somebody the, has a bias. Yeah, I think in the- What kid, did you find out? What, what did you find out that was interesting when you were doing your, uh, your upcoming book and you were researching? Oh my gosh, there's a lot of interesting stuff. So I, I spent a lot of time on older on older kids, and so I so I end up you know talking, um, thinking a lot about sort of schools and and um, and probably the most interesting stuff. I'm not going to spoiler it. I'm just going to tell you what I thought <laughs> it was. Is uh, is thinking about how kids learn to read. I think partly because I was like writing that while I was trying to teach my kid to read, but just thinking about the mechanics of like how you read uh, is is just like a super interesting like sciencey yeah. topic. So, yeah, I like I'm fascinated in that one because the I met this three year old the other day, um, 
and I went up to him and I see him running around this parking lot. <laughs> it's a funny way to say it. Like you just like walking down the street, there's a three-year-old that you yeah, met. Okay. It stands out to me. I don't, I don't interact with children in my daily life ever. I, I never interact with children. It's like an event for me to see anyone under the okay. age of 25. Right. <laughs> like, All right. So you find this three-year-old on the street and you so start I, chatting I, with him. I, so I kidnapped this three-year-old. No. So <laughs> <laughs> I was at a I was at a bakery and this bakery near my house has like antique cars in the parking lot every Sunday morning. And so I'm getting there, I'm getting my Danishes and I'm going out looking at all these old cars. And I see this little three-year-old running around. And I just said something to be nice, like, hey, how's it going? And he, I mean, he two or three years old. I say, hey, man, how, how are you? He looks me in the eyes and goes, I'm having a really good day, thanks. I was like, whoa, you're too young to have full sentences. <laughs> and and I said, who are you here with? And he goes, oh, I'm here with my grandpa. My dad couldn't make it today. And I'm like, whoa, what is going on here? And we had a whole conversation about his grandfather's car and what type of car he would like to have. And I was just mind blown. And I thought, well, his parents must be reading to him. That was what I thought. I don't know if that necessarily means that's what's going on, but I thought, wow, that that's a lot of work that goes into raising a child that allowing that child to fulfill their potential intellectually, at least early. Yeah. I mean, reading is one of the few things with like sort of little kids that we kind of see these, we see these, uh, these kinds of effects on, on sort of later test scores and talking. And, and there are some like, there's some really interesting stuff about, you know, the number of words that kids hear and how that differs across socioeconomic status and just like, you know, richer kids are just hearing more, they just hear more, literally more words um, than, than poor kids. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that it, that it makes a difference. Cause I, you know, that's what we have, we were taught when, you know, when we had small kids at our, at our house and I would spend all this time reading to them. I mean, I, I read lots of books to, uh, to all three of our kids. And uh, I remember having a conversation with one of them and uh, mentioning a book. And I said, Oh, you know, you, you, you've read that. You remember we, we read all of the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, you know, when you were growing up and they're like, no, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> was, this, was this wasted effort? That was a lot of So many hours. Are you kidding me? Um, and they're like, I don't remember any of that. So, but I'm, I'm hoping that this is what I tell myself that, that it was the process of that, that, that mattered. Uh, you know, all our kids went on to be academically successful. And I'm hoping that it was that that process, that verbal interaction, seeing the words and going through that, that, that resonates. And I'm, so I'm hoping that's true. Don't don't uh, don't dispel that myth for me. If that's the no, 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 no. That you're that is not that is not a myth. That is uh, reading is among the most uh, actually yeah, among the things where we have the best causal evidence. I think. <laughs> that's funny. Do you ever feel bad that you're just like popping myths for people that they've held on to? Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah, sometimes. But then I, sometimes I, you know, I make people feel better about stuff. So it's like a mixed bag. Well, it cancels itself out then, I'm it cancels sure. Cancels itself, exactly. I try to delete the negative emails. That's good. That's good. I hope you don't get very many. I'm surprised. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, Emily, thank you so much for uh, being with us. This is fun conversation. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing the book that, you, uh, that you've got coming out. Family Firm. And on Amazon, on where can we get Amazon it? is, yeah, Amazon and, and where books are sold. I'm is. now a, 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 a fan of this series. And uh, it's, like I said, 
it got nothing to do with my life plans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're See, so eventually, you're eventually you'll be saying, you're make some woman so happy and be like, well, all the things I know about nipples. Yeah. <laughs> like it's more like a full date conversation. So you should be seeing Thanks for listening to this episode of Decidedly. I hope you learned something. I know I did. If you thought our show was five-star worthy, please check us out on iTunes and give us a five-star review. It really helps out a lot, helps people find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. Check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Until next time, I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is decidedly. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Decidedly podcast. To be notified when new episodes are released, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, drop us a five-star review because it helps more people defeat bad decision-making right alongside you. For show notes, decision-making insights, more episodes, and links to resources mentioned in this episode, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com. If you'd like us to help you make a decision in your own life, drop us a note at decidedlypodcast.com slash make my decision for a chance to have your question featured in an upcoming episode. For more decision-making content, check us out on Instagram or Facebook at Decidedly Podcast. As always, thanks for listening. This is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast was produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.